Hello and welcome to Recovery Corner, where we introduce you to those making a difference to help you and your loved ones navigate the road to recovery. I'm Thomas Becker with AverHealth, and today we're speaking with Steve Hansen, who has over 40 years of experience as a treatment provider, educator, and consultant. Steve is the former Associate Commissioner for Courts and Criminal Justice for the New York State Office of Alcoholism and Substance Abuse Services. He trains criminal justice practitioners on drug abuse and treatment, and for 16 years has been a faculty member on the National Drug Court Institute, which is part of the NADCP. Welcome, Steve. Hi, Tom. How are you today? Good, thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to join us uh, for a fascinating conversation, I think it'll be. <laughs> you recently presented a webinar for AverHealth about the psychopharmacology of addiction. Uh, just to start, for those not familiar with the term, how do you define psychopharmacology? Well, psychopharmacology is um, basically the study of looking at um, drugs that their action um, is primarily in the brain, resulting in either changes in emotion, behavior, uh, memory, etc. Um, so it's different than, say, an antibiotic. It's those things that we would label as psychoactive. And it's important to understand when you're talking about um, drug use is, well, what exactly does the drug do? Right. And with that in mind, in that recent webinar that you helped us with, you start by asking two questions I'd like to address here. Sure. One, why do people do drugs and alcohol and why can't they stop? Yeah, um, basically the, the, with the first question, why do people do drugs, um, is essentially, you know, people like drugs. We pretty much all do. Um, that very few of us are completely psychoactive drug-free. Um, when you include caffeine, having a cup of coffee in the morning, cup of tea, um, that's something that does have a psychoactive property. It helps with alertness. It helps you wake up in the morning. And when we have to get up and do a presentation, we want to be wide awake for it. So having that caffeine can be helpful. There are other substances that, um, you know, like I'm an old guy now, and um, I need lots of ibuprofen to help with the aches and pains and that relief um, of those things I find very beneficial. There are other people, however, who like things like the relaxation that you get from alcohol. Um, the same thing with uh, cannabis, the um, stimulant that you get from um, you know, cocaine or methamphetamine or the euphoria that an opioid might produce. So we generally like those things. What happens to some people is the difference in how often or how much of the substance they do and which substance they do. And, you know, the people will seek, as you said, kind of any means to, to alter their state of consciousness. You've kind of started to lay it out, but take us through the science. Like how do drugs and alcohol work and, and how do they affect the brain? Well, what they do, um, your brain basically works on a, a principle of different nerve cells talking to each other. They send these little chemical messengers called neurotransmitters um, from cell one to cell two. And when the neurotransmitter chemical docks at cell two, it either turns it on or turns it off. And one of the most common places for drugs to interact is in the reward center of the brain where you feel pleasure. Um, where if you do something and you go, oh, that was nice, this is the part of the brain that's lighting up. And a drug like cocaine stimulates that part, as do uh, you know, like almost every psychoactive drug, caffeine, nicotine, opioids, synthetics, um, you know, methamphetamine, 
alcohol, et cetera, all push that button that says, oh, that was nice. I like that. Mm -hmm. And then people go, I'd like to feel that again. Um, it's like, you know, you go to um, a, a celebration and there's a buffet and somebody says, here, try this. And you try to go, oh, that's nice. And then you grab three or four more of them because you want to experience that again. The same sort of thing happens with substance use is that you take, um, you know, like that first time that you try cocaine and you're like, wow, I wow, that was really good. Um, I'd, I'd be interested in trying that again. Now, some people try that and go, oh, I don't like that. And they wouldn't want to do it again. But for a lot of people, that um, pushing that button on that reward center feels so nice, and they want to replicate that. So, so if someone you know tries it uh, as illicit as it is, uh, but doesn't care for it, how is there something in their brain that's that's differently structured, or or, or you know something in there saying, eh, don't don't do this again. Well, it, it, it's a combination of things. We like to say, you know, addiction is based on a biopsychosocial model. Um, so you have people, when you, we take a look at the biological part, and this is where the drug interaction with the brain takes effect. This is the psychopharmacology part. But then there's social elements. Um, you know, do they have networks of friends? Is there, you know, are they close with their family? Do they have a job? Do they um, you know, have hobbies, et cetera. Um, and then there's the psychological part, which is, you know, like, are they depressed? Are they, um, you know, are, are quote unquote normal? And for somebody who's depressed, they might be more attracted to certain drugs. It presses a button that normally isn't pushed for them. Whereas mm. somebody who's not depressed goes, well, yeah, I can feel that way all the time. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't really make a difference for me. Now, once folks get down the path, uh, you know, one of the topics we emphasize here is that addiction is a, is a disease, essentially a brain disease, right? Yes. Um, what, what, you know, what makes it so? In other words, you know, we, we constantly tell people, look, this is an addiction that needs treatment. What, what makes it a brain disease, per se? Well, our, our understanding of it as a brain disease has really been helped by advances um, in imaging that have happened with things like PET scans. And we're able to see that prolonged use of a drug can change the way the brain is functioning. And we'll see um, things like um, after prolonged use of cocaine, um, when the person stops using cocaine, their brain isn't as active, meaning the cells aren't firing as much. Um, sort of like um, like one of the key areas that happens in is the frontal lobe, which is the decision-making part of the brain. And when the decision-making part isn't working optimally, people can make poor decisions because the part of the brain that would go, no, that's not a good idea. You shouldn't do that. Isn't really active. So uh, an emotional side might go, oh yeah, this looks like fun. Let's go do it. And you see somebody make a poor choice. And the reason for that cho poor choice is that there's sort of self-selection system of being able to recognize the pros and cons of things isn't working. And that some of these changes in the brain can last for months. And in some cases, um, like methamphetamine, which actually um, damages nerve cells, it's called neurotoxic, those changes can be permanent. And, you know, we talk here a lot on, on our podcasts about the road to recovery, how some people obviously succeed, and we want to share those success stories. 
and others may not. And, and so, yeah, you'd mentioned the external factors, the, the social network, uh, poverty, whatever the case may be. But why do people, some people succeed, uh, in other words, uh, become clean and, and others have that struggle? Well, I think um, it's hard to understand and be able to predict exactly who might struggle and who will do really well. But one of the things that um, we've been focusing on the past few years, really paying attention to it, is the notion of recovery capital. Um, mm -hmm. And recovery capital is the amount of things that you have um, that can help support your recovery. And think of it as a pantry. And if you're a cook um, and you want to go make something and you go look in your pantry and it's empty, you're really not going to be able to make much. But if your pantry has a lot of different ingredients in it, a lot of basic things, um, you're going to be able to support that. So when somebody is looking for a recovery and let's say they have a bad day and but they don't have a social network of friends, um, they're going to struggle with you know, just sitting there being depressed and the part of the brain that remembers, oh, we can get rid of that. We All we have to do is use our drug will be very alluring to them. Whereas somebody who has a lot of friends or activities to do um, might be able to say, well, let me go do this instead. Let me call my friend or let me do this. Or, um, you know, like many cases, people say, I'll go to a 12 step or another self-help meeting. Um, and the more resources you have in your pantry to help you, you probably have a better chance. And we've always focused on um, the treatment part, um, which is actually a short part of somebody's recovery pathway um, and not paid attention to what happens when they leave um, mm. and what things are going on. So this is the notion of looking at things like recovery capital. Um, peer networks where professional peers can help people. Um, and it's a supportive relationship that can um, work with somebody without it having to be a formal treatment relationship. Um, and the, uh, the peers have you know, like similar experience to somebody can say, yeah, I've been where you are. This is, um, you know, it, it feels awful. That, you know, these are things that I did that helped and um, I'll try and help you. So being able to have those supports, imagine going in for heart surgery and the surgery is pretty successful. But after you're released from the hospital, you, you don't do any of the rehab things. You don't change your diet. You don't do any of the things that they would like you to do. Um, and the odds are you'll be back in the hospital soon if that doesn't happen. So we're trying to put some emphasis on what are the things that somebody has at home in their community um, emotionally that will fill up that pantry so they have a lot of support for their recovery. Yeah, that, that's a great analogy. So pantry or toolkit, however you look at it. I like that. Yep. I like that a lot. You said uh, you said on the webinar that people with uh, substance use disorder have bad breaks, as you as you call it, when it comes yep. to brain function, like decision making and, and so on. So it's essentially impaired at that point. What is happening behind the scenes neurologically in someone with substance use disorder? You know, why can't they make those? Why can't they say stop? Well, the like your normal process is, um, let's say you're cruising through uh, Amazon on your phone and you see something, oh, that, that looks really nice. And part of your brain goes, oh, I want that, I want that, I want that. 
And then your other part of your brain, your frontal lobe, might look at it and go, well, you know, it's a little expensive. You know, we got to pay the rent this month or you, know, you really, really don't need it. And um, it sort of counteracts the emotional, let's go do it now, and gets you to say, okay, nah, I really shouldn't do this. So it, it takes away the impulse. Now, if that frontal lobe where those things happen isn't working as actively, it'll be much more difficult to curb impulses. And one of the impulses that people can have because you know, it's part of the compulsion of addiction is to go out and use. So rather than somebody thinking, um, oh, I shouldn't use because, um, you know, like I'm on probation or I'll get in trouble, I'll miss work, um, my spouse will be mad at me, I'll, uh, other th bad things can happen. Um, the impulse, oh, this is going to feel great, let's go do it. Um, and so what you have to be careful of, particularly during like early recovery, waiting for those parts of the brain to come fully back in line, and it can take a few months for that to happen. Um, that you're careful about all the decisions you make, that you try and you know, like tamp down impulsive decisions. Turning our attention now to kind of some of the, the trends out there from, from your years of experience and research and what worries you or concerns you most right now in terms of some of the emerging drugs, we've seen obviously tragedy with fentanyl, uh, you know, trank, uh, an animal, you know, drug is essentially being used for deadly consequences. What, what, what is frightening to you right now, given your pharma, pharmacological background? Um, well, for a long time, I used to teach a college course um, that included the sort of history of substance use, um, particularly in the United States. And we go through cycles. Um, and different drugs come to prominence and then disappear for a while and come back. Alcohol has always sort of always been there. Um, during Prohibition 100 years ago, it diminished a bit, but not really, as we know from all the speakeasies and gangster movies and so forth. Um, but we know that during different phases, uh, you know, going back um, to the 1960s, where we started to see first the rise of amphetamines, um, prescription amphetamines that were used, um, you know, they were referred to as Rolling Stone's mother's little helper. Um, you had driver, truck drivers using them. They were called West Coast turnarounds. You could keep driving without having to go to sleep. Um, and that was sort of on the, you know, we really weren't focused on it. A lot of people getting them as diet pills. Um, for that. And um, it became really problematical to the point where the Food and Drug Administration um, severely limited what amphetamines could be um, prescribed for. So the amphetamines sort of dried up and this created an empty space for cocaine to come in and fill. Um, and then as cocaine, we were putting a lot of efforts in um, during the war on drugs and stopping cocaine from entering the country, um, methamphetamine came to like, and this is a non-prescription type of amphetamine that could be made um, either in a home laboratory or at a, a methamphetamine manufacturing. So you see those things come and wane. You know, we had the rise of opioids, um, in part driven by prescription opioids back in you know, like 2008 through 2010. Then in 2011-ish, we started to get 
prescription monitoring programs so people weren't able to go to four different doctors and get four different prescriptions for OxyContin. And, um, the doctors had to uh, log in and see if you had any. So that limited prescription opioids. And then you know, somebody said, well, we can bring heroin back in. And so heroin appeared on the market. It was much cheaper than the prescription drugs that people were buying illicitly on the street. And that uh, we saw a rise in heroin use. And then with fentanyl um, just sort of taking off. Um, and, you know, like originally it was instead of heroin, but now what's kind of scary is they're adding fentanyl to almost everything, in particular, like cocaine and methamphetamine. So you see that. Then there's always, uh, well, you mentioned TRANQ, T R A N Q, as it's sometimes referred to, um, xylazine. Um, there's always some sort of weird um, drug that goes on that has some very toxic um, experiences to it. We saw this with angel dust. Um, we saw this with illicit ketamine, not ketamine that's used medically, but illicit ketamine. These are, again, were two animal tranquilizers. Um, xylazine and whatever they do, they do something that some people like, um, but they can have very um, damaging consequences. Xylazine, which is you know, the new thing, um, can really um, damage um, your skin with various infections and um, can really wreak havoc with your health, um, as well as you know, turning you, as they refer to it, sort of into a zombie. Um, and these things sort of, those come sort of come and go because they don't appeal to a lot of people to feel that way. Um, but when you look at sort of the more quote unquote mainstream, um, you know, there's always alcohol, there's all, you know, cannabis has been around a long time. Um, and then you have, you know, like the stimulants, cocaine, methamphetamine, the opioids, um, you get some people who, uh, uh, use sedatives like barbiturates or more commonly, um, benzodiazepines, the anti-anxietal, um, drugs, a lot of people, um, can get in trouble with those because they have a very long protracted withdrawal syndrome. Um, and during that syndrome, you're very anxious, which people don't like. So they know that if they take the medication again, the, the anxiety will go away. And so you know, what I'm paying attention to is as opioids, the course of this current opioid crisis, it probably will wane sometime in the next five to 10 years, and we're due again for another stimulant rising. So you probably will have methamphetamine, um, you know, potentially cocaine coming back. Um, you know, there always seems to be some sort of political uncertainty with uh, things that go on with Peru and Colombia, um, and whether uh, the manufacture, the, you know, the growing and manufacture of cocaine will go up again. Um, you know, it's still out there. We haven't completely halted it, but um, if there's money to be made, somebody will figure out how to make it. That is a very, very good summary. Thank you. And just to kind of end our, on a positive note, I suppose, what are some of the uh, some solutions, some pharmacological solutions anyway, to, to some of these problems? You talked about the pantry. I like that analogy. But from from your background, what what can help people? on that road to recovery, given all that's all that what's out there and what's coming up? Well, I think, you know, there are uh, you know, like a variety of things that help them. There are the traditional 
um, counseling type treatment approaches that can be very helpful. Um, we know that a lot of people who develop substance use issues have a history of trauma. Um, they may have been abused or neglected as children. They may have gone through um, like a war experience and that has impacted them resulting in post-traumatic stress disorder. And we know there are treatments that are effective in helping to mediate that. We also know, particularly for the opioids, that there are sets of medications that can really help save lives. And I think that's one of the, um, you know, the most salient things that we're looking at today is keeping people alive. Um, mm. Probably about 110,000. They haven't finalized the number yet for 2022. Um, but I'm going to guess about 110,000 people died of an overdose in the country. Um, that's a lot of people. And to the degree that we have medications that can help prevent that from happening, like um, long-acting naltrexone, methadone, mm -hmm. buprenorphine, um, you know, methadone and buprenorphine um, are medications that um, you know, like alleviate the withdrawal symptoms and get rid of the craving that people experience, so they can function normally and won't go out looking um, for illicit um, opioids. Uh, which may be tainted with fentanyl, which um, may contain a fatal strength for them. Long-acting naltrexone will prevent opioids from working. Um, so for some people, that's really effective in that they can, as long as they keep on the medication, um, that if they tried and use an opioid, it's not going to work. So they go, okay, um, if it's not going to work, A, you won't overdose on it, and B, you probably won't look to it again. The, you know, like the first line for, for folks in treatment of opioid use disorder is the medications. And this is something that um, the American Medical Association, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, the World Health Organization, they all recognize that with medications, it shouldn't be, well, let's try you without them first and then see how you do. And if you don't do so well, um, then maybe we'll look at a medication. Well, not doing so well means you died of an overdose. Um, and you never want to go to your doctor and basically have it. Well, let's see if you live and if, if, if things really go bad, we'll give you the medication. No, you want the medication right away. And it's well documented, well researched how life saving these things can be and that people can take them and function normally and do really well. So, you know, as we say, alive is good. And to the degree that we can help people stay alive and uh, work through their issues and begin to thrive in recovery. Um, is what our goal is. Absolutely. That's why we're all here. Steve Hansen, thank you very much for your insights and knowledge and for joining us on Recovery Corner. Glad to be here.